I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. James Whelan is on assignment on a boat somewhere in Sydney Harbour. Uh, but joining me on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, managing director and chief investment officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colga. I'm well, uh, a little bit cold. It is getting somewhat brisk here, especially in the morning, but uh, all good, all good. Yeah, um, things are good. It is absolutely beautiful. It is genuinely the most perfect day uh, you have seen in Sydney uh, for a long time. We are recording this uh, at 6 p.m. in Sydney on November the 26th, 2020. Uh, now, Ken, a start a question for you. Um, things are not going all that terribly well in Europe. Um, is Amsterdam busy now? Like, are, are, are the CBDs like firing, etc.? Um, well, first off, you're right. Things aren't going all that well in uh, in Europe, but I take no responsibility for that. It's not my fault, Colgo. Um, yeah, look, uh, for once, for once, exactly. Uh, the CBD. It's here in Amsterdam. There's there's a there's a, a I suppose an area not not dissimilar to Canary Wharf in London, and in fact. Uh, I live probably, I don't know, maybe a 10-minute walk, a five-minute bike ride from there. Luckily, it's not like the Isle of Dogs. It's, you know, it's different. But uh, And I go past there regularly, and it's still very, very, very quiet. I mean, it's it's probably a little bit up on, obviously, the spring and, you know, March, April times. But uh, in that particular segment, it's, it's still very quiet. Elsewhere in Amsterdam, you know, the, the more creative, like the Paddingtons, if you, if you equate it to Sydney and the like, yeah, bits and pieces going on, but, you know, it's very much still work from home if you can, and if you absolutely cannot, then then don't. Um, so, you know, it, are things firing? Not really, man. I mean, you know, people are around, but, yeah, not that much. Um, so I think it's a really interesting question, isn't it? After the pure awfulness of this past year, which, to be honest, I'm glad we're nearly at the end of. But there is this really interesting question which is around land use. And I'm about to use this as a segue to introduce our fantastic guest. Um, but the, uh, the the Sydney CBD is picking up again a little bit and you can tell at the same time it's nowhere near uh, as like crowded, busy, energised as it was before. At the same time, you know, there's you hear a lot of excitement in a lot of quarters around, you know, the idea or, uh, about, like, we can all work from home and it's a revolution, you know, we can work from anywhere. Now, obviously, this is an issue for Australian cities, um, but it's also an issue for cities like Amsterdam, London, uh, Berlin, Rome, Milan, um, anywhere that there's mixed industrial use. And, of course, it raises, I think, what is a really scary question. If you can do your job from Bondi, why can't it be done from Bangalore. Um, so, 
To discuss all of this, we're joined by one of the preeminent spatial economists in Australia. Uh, it's Terry Ronsley, who was until recently a principal and partner at SGS Economics, a very highly respected uh, consultancy. Um, he will be joining uh, might be breaking some news here, um, but he, and Terry will be joining uh, KPMG next year, working on the uh, in the transport and infrastructure practices. Terry really understands. I've known the guy for a while, um, but he really understands how uh, economic activity breaks down across physical space in Australia in inc- incredible detail. Terry Ronsley, welcome to the Bip Show. Paul, thanks for that very uh, complimentary introduction. Terry, um, let's get straight into it. Okay, so to your mind, um, what have been the standout things that we've learned about the distribution of economic activity this year? Well, you know, in Australia, a couple of things kept ticking along. So the the mining and agricultural sectors, you know, was business as usual, pretty much. Um, You know, what what I call, you know, knowledge intensive industries. So, you know, information media, finance insurance, you know, accountants, lawyers, you know, they transitioned to working from home and kept on ticking along pretty well. Uh, But I'll talk about more about that in a minute. Um, But it's really that sort of that face to face retail food services, which got smashed with all the restrictions. One of the things here is that a lot of corporates actually did completely fine. Yeah, and a lot of corporates, you know, over the last, you know, probably 10 years have been, you know, embracing the work-from-home trend. Um, the, the good people at the Bureau of Statistics ran a survey a couple of years ago where they asked people people if they'd worked from home, and about 50% of the workforce responded they had done some work from home. So that could be someone working from home five days a week or doing a day a week from home or even like, you know, catching up on some emails um, after the kids have gone to bed. But that, that's sort of 50% of people were already to some degree working from home and that big corporates have just basically just pivoted to keep that whole workforce ticking along with COVID by picking back off the infrastructure they built up, the cultures they built up around working from home. So so the interesting thing here is the infrastructure that they built up. So there's infrastructure that the country builds up in terms of NBN, uh, the telco, the investments that telcos make because they can, you know, private companies think they can make a profit off it, etc. But then there's also the investment that companies make in these systems, isn't it right? Like, so it's we're starting to get down into the weeds of this really, really quickly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, uh, but but it get, it gets down to company level too, doesn't it? Like the decisions companies make themselves, and then how their workforce responds to that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, you know, COVID's probably done more for companies. You know, digital transformation strategies than any CEO could have done um, because it's just it's forced people to sort of really embrace it and from, from talking to a whole range of different people that there were companies which were already on this you know working from home work from the office work from your clients location and then there was others when COVID hit they were like gee our staff don't have laptops we don't have a VPN you know all, all this IT infrastructure that haven't even thought about um, they had to try and throw together whereas other ones was like okay Let's just send everyone home in March. 
and the system will hold up and away we go. So completely selfish uh, reason for um, doing a, a, a show on this, but I, I, I wrote a column that got published on Monday in the Sydney Morning Herald um, about this because I genuinely think there's a risk of a lot of economic activity getting destroyed um, by people not being in cities. So how much is really going to change in CBD uh, districts in in your opinion and this is going to lead us I think into a broader conversation but let's just start with that how much is going to change in our cities yeah and, and this is sort of you know a, a bit of an unknown um, and people get you know really you know we talk about coffees and lunches you know in Sydney CBD it's like oh well look you know I'm working from Bondi I'm buying my coffee there so no big deal but when you look at the Sydney um, City of Sydney, it, it generates about $140 billion worth of income in a normal year. Um, about only about $20 billion of that is food services retail. $100 billion of it is um, this knowledge-intensive sector I talked about. And this is a danger, Paul, that, you know, that sector, if working from home is costing you even like a 1%, you know, impact on your productivity, you know, that's going to add up to millions of dollars very quickly. So 120 billion, if you start to slice that down just a little bit here and there uh, in productivity uh, and in economic output that contributes to the national accounts, let's be clear about this, you know, in terms of GDP, GDP growth, all of this stuff, you know, we're not just talking about like fanciful numbers in terms of, you know, when we say $120 billion, we're talking about like the real stuff, the real dollar amount that turns into GDP output at the end of the day, right? Yeah, so it's, it's almost 10% of Sydney's GDP, uh, sorry, Australia's GDP is coming from the Sydney CBD there. And if you think about, you know, we get excited if there's 1%, you know, productivity growth in a year. What I'm talking about, we could lose that 1% and we have no productivity growth. And then our 3% GDP growth, which is built on 1% productivity growth, you know, goes down over the longer term. You might be able to talk about this compounding effect of like lost productivity. One percent of lost productivity uh, compounded can turn into you know significant like tens of millions of dollars. It's it's the multiplier effect, Colgo. You're not an economist, neither am I, but let's simplify it. The multiplier effect of the diminished one percent in productivity. Where does it kick on? And and you sort of you think about you know. You know, people at home are going, well, what are they talking about productivity being lost? And the example I give, if, if, if I'm in a meeting room with four people and I'm trying to explain some economic concept to them, um, I can pretty quickly tell if, if one of those four people is confused by what I'm saying because I can read the cues. Um, whereas if I've got four people on a Zoom call, it's much harder to pick up on those subtle ones. So I might do my in-person meeting and I see, hey, Paul, you look confused about, you know, productivity. Um, let, let's unpack that now. Whereas on the Zoom call, I've got no idea you're confused and you go away, um, none the wiser and hence that impacts on the job you're trying to do. There is a productivity benefit and an economic opportunity in what you just talked about there, Terry, which is the congregation of, of, of companies and people in a physical location, right? So which we would typically call it like a CBD. As you said, one of the common complaints people have about the idea that there's no economic sacrifice in in moving out to living in the suburbs is that like you know, well the retail dollars like they'll just transfer out to our communities and don't we want our communities to 
to be supported. And absolutely, yes, we do. But we also want thriving, brilliant um, central business districts in the major Australian urban centres. That is going to come with people being invested in it. And I, I, I think I worry that that people in the excitement that, uh, that, that there is around, you know, let's, you know, all go home and work from home and have this fantastic work-life balance that will actually cut a whole bunch of economic activity out of uh, our overall uh, uh, community and a whole bunch of benefits that come with that. But it's incredibly hard to measure. So it comes back to this productivity co- question. But is there any way to, to, to measure the benefit of... of physical collocation of, of, of companies. Yeah, and, and what we've done in the past is like you look at the the income generated by different businesses in the same industry across Sydney and what you find is that the closer you get into the city, the more productive the businesses are. And this is observed in Sydney, New York, you know, any city um, around the world and it's been observed, you know, in the last 20 years, the last 200 years and to, to use a big fancy word, you know, it's all about the agglomeration economies. Actually, that's two words. Um, but th- this agglomeration, it's, it's, it is, it's hard to explain because it's all this very nuanced. Um, it's like you're in a coffee line, you bump into a collaborator, you have a chat and you learn something, you know. It, it's not like you've called him up on Skype and had a chat. You've bumped into him. You've learned some gossip, for want of a better word. You've learned some intel that you go and try and do your job better. Or you bump into a client, you find out there's some work coming out and you want to know how to position yourself. And, and also in, in this knowledge-intensive sort of uh, industry, you know, so much of it is based around, you know, social capital and trust in the people that you're working with. And, you know, Paul, you know, I, I've met you in real life. We went out for lunch, you know, had some beers. Um, I remember you paid for it. You know, that's a, a tick in <laughs> your column. So when you when you messaged me and said you want to come on here, I said, oh yeah, sure. You know, Paul bought me a couple of beers, and he's a good guy. I met him. So um, you just can't get that same sort of trust and social capital um, built up in the virtual world. And there, there was some research I saw, you know, pre-COVID, which showed that um, people you lived or worked closer to, you tended to have more um, virtual interactions with. So, you know, you bump into someone in the foyer, you know, you'll email them because you've seen them or you email them and you arrange to catch up. It's harder. If you don't see people, it's like, oh, I haven't seen Paul in a few months or a few years. Like, it's harder to email them. But even if you see, hey, there's Paul crossing the street. Hey, there's Ken. You know, he's in Amsterdam. Um, you know, you see it. You, you feel more connected to the people because it, it's tangible. It's that social capital coming through. Is that the same as the concept of, I suppose, recency bias? So basically, if I haven't seen you in six months, out of sight, out of mind. But if you're there, you know, then, then I think, oh, yeah, by the way, I, I should have done this or how about a coffee with him or whatever it is. Is that the same sort of principle you're talking about? Exactly, yeah. It's, it's that yeah. that visual social interaction. And you don't have to ha- stop and have a big chat, but you see, mm. oh, Paul, there he is across the street. Or and even this is where it gets harder to explain. It's the network effect. Like, you know, I might bump into Paul and he says, oh, yeah, Ken's in Amsterdam and this is happening. So these networks flow out, and then I go, oh, I'm going to be talking to my friend. Oh, you're going to Amsterdam. You should see Ken and, you know, have a chat or mm. do some business. Right, right. So, so can you put some hard numbers around this? Just in, in last financial year, so that sort of uh, initial lockdown in Sydney, you know, th- this loss of this agglomeration, you know, this productivity 
was probably going to cost the, the Sydney and New South Wales and Australian economy, you know, something like four or five billion dollars um, in lost productivity by looking at this historical relationship between firms which are more suburban and firms which are more CBD. A few things that are awesome about cities. They create economies of scale, right? So they, mm-hmm. they bring a workforce together. They um, often ha- are situated in places that are um, great to be, right? So for various reasons. So they might be great exporting um, uh, locations like London is um, or like Sydney is. Um, but they also might just be uh, great stop-off points. They're places where people come together because it's easy to come together to do things that uh, improve your life, um, but also for people to congregate and also solve common problems. And the lesson of history is also to tell you that if you invest and concentrate people in these areas, that you get economic benefits. Um, we need to be working like physically together in order to um, get the maximum benefit from our efforts. Is that a ridiculous thesis or is it sound, as you might say? Well, no, yeah, you know, you, you've, you've said a lot there, Paul, and you've made a lot of good points. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a classical uh, education. I grew up in North Queensland. Um, but, like, you think about, you know, ancient Greeks philosophers. They, they all came to Athens so they could be together and bounce ideas off each other. And that's sort of the same sort of holds today. You know, if you want to be in financial markets, New York, London, Sydney uh, are the places to go. If you want to be in, you know, um, uh, the movies, you go to Hollywood. If you want to be in, you know, uh, Silicon Valley, if you want to, you know, really make a name for yourself. So all these places have that, you know, people, skill, businesses that all feed off each other. And while the way I just sort of describe it is, you know, we've had this period of, you know, 2020 where we've sort of been on life support of working from home, you know, people's relationships have held up um, in the virtual world. Everyone's in this together, so to speak. But, you know, as you move into 2021, you know, you'll have this situation where people will be onboarded into organisations and start working with people who you'd never met. And, you know, if this goes on and on, you won't have that that social capital I talked about, that incidental um, conversations going on, and it will start to eat away. So while, while working from home is part of the future, you just can't rely solely on working from home. There are a couple of things to my mind. One is, first and foremost, humans are social creatures. They crave and they require social interaction, be that in the workplace, be that outside of work, in their leisure life and whatever else. Obviously, uh, extenuating circumstances this year, if we're to believe that a vaccine is imminent and everything that flows on inside the next probably 18 or so months, we would look globally at the world returning to some, I say some in inverted commas, form of norm, right? Which means that people go back to work, maybe not five days a week and whatever else. Um, you know, I, I, I just don't believe that the world and the CBDs and, and, and whatever else is now, you know, that's it. We're in a new paradigm. We're in a new uh, situation whereby things change dramatically and for good, as in that's it. They'll never go back. I think, you know, people people like to say, oh, I like to work from home. But let me tell you, it's not at all it's cracked up to be. And, I mean, there have been hundreds of articles written in the last nine months about that. So I suppose economically, I think, and, and Terry, please speak to this, I think economically there will be inevitably a push to go back to physically being in the office. Maybe not 
as it was in 2019 and all the years prior. But, you know, I, I still don't think that that's it. The, the, the tide has turned and, you know, off we go. So, I mean, the, the co-location of, of being in the same room or the same proximity or whatever, is, it, you know, can you talk to, talk to that point at all, please, Terry? Yeah, and, you know, there's been some sort of opinion polling done you know, across the, the world about people's perceptions. And the way I describe it is, is there's 25% of the population just itching to get back into the office. They are just super keen to get back in there because they're social creatures or they've got a pile of kids at home which makes it hard to, to work from home. Then there's, there's 25% of people who are like, yeah, no, nah, I'm never coming back into the office. See you later. This, this is for me working from home forever. And then there's 50%. They're, they're the hipsters. They're, they're, they're hipsters. So you say there's 25% of the population are hipsters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, well, you know, I, I live in Brunswick in Melbourne, which is, you know, got a very high hipster ratio. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's a podcast for another day. Um, and then you get 50% sort of in the middle who say, well, like, yeah, look, working from home a day or two a week's fine. I'll come into the office, you know, and see you. So it, it's really that, that 50% of people who you just got to convince the saying, well, look, there is value in coming in. And this is where the sort of paradox of thrift, you know, concept. Um, so paradox of this, you know, very old economic concept saying, if I save some dollars, that's good for me, but the economy as a whole misses out because there's less spending going on. So if everyone saves, individually it's good, but as a nation, the economy is worse off. There genuinely is this, this question of like, um, what's good for me might not necessarily be good for my community. What might be your best choice is not exactly what the rest of the community needs long term, right? So, so that we need people coming into the city and being together in in an office, right? So, and and I think that at the company level, this is where it gets completely fascinating to me. What are companies telling their people about? working from home because if you surveyed 500 people do you want to come back to the office um they will say yes um or and there will be a certain proportion that says no um yeah but it's exactly the thing saying well look um you think about like if you're a really experienced uh, member of your organization and um, you being in the office means that less experienced people can go, oh, hey, there's, there's Paul over there. I'm just going to go ask him a question or, you know, we bump into each other at the photocopier and I, and I learn something from you or you solve the problem in one minute, which would take an hour, you know, for a more junior person to solve. You know, it's important to have those people in the office some days of the week so they can sort of impart the knowledge. They, they might sit at home and go, well, look, you know, my commute's long and painful, um, so I'm just going to stay at home. So it saves them, paradox of thrift, you know, some time or some money. But their their peers or the, in their company, their company misses out from that um, productivity that they can bring with them when they're physically in the office. Do you think, Terry, that people should be getting back to work in CBDs? Yes. I, I think um, it, it's, it's really interesting if you look at um, – Perth and Adelaide, who have had a very good uh, COVID run um, for the past year, their CBD is at sort of 60 or 70% capacity. And and for me, that, that's that sort of two groups talked about before. People were keen to get back and the other 50%. But they're still missing a third of their workers, which means there's 
um, dismissing agglomeration. So encouraging those people, those holdouts who might still have, you know, concerns about getting on public transport, you know, um, don't like their commute, don't like their jobs. <laughs> um, getting those people drawn back into the CBDs is really important. Um, and then you look at Sydney, which I think is about 40 or 50% capacity, and then Melbourne CBD is about 10% capacity. So getting those CBDs, you know, more active, you know, we, we, we won't probably go back to a point where, and we never were at the point where every worker went to the office five days a week. You know, a lot of people, you know, um, might have worked from home waiting for those elusive tradies to come around or work from home one day a week to do drop-off and pick-up for the kids. You know, that's was always there pre-COVID. But post-COVID, you know, you might just have a little bit more of that happening, but still it's so important to get people back into those CBDs to get companies' um, internal ecosystems of productivity recharged and ensuring that broader ecosystem um, of innovation and productivity uh, is back to where it was pre-COVID with all these social capitals, agglomeration economies I've been rambling on about the last half hour. Terry, you, you've, you've probably answered the next question, but I'll ask it anyway. I mean, do you see the, 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 the instance in the, you know, of, of COVID and obviously everything we've gone through over the last year and will continue to go through for a bit longer? I mean, is, is this the catalyst to change a dynamic that's been, well, decades in the making. I mean, CBDs aren't unique to Sydney or to Melbourne or to Perth. You know, it's a global phenomenon and they're there for a reason. We've also seen in the last, I don't know, probably two decades, you know, I liken it again to, to Sydney, you know, the Paddingtons and the, and the Wallaras and whatever else, fringe, CBD fringes springing up and probably the inner west, you know, the more creatives, the more whatever else. So the, the dynamic is adjusting, but... Is, is COVID really a reason or the reason for all of a sudden to abandon the CBD phenomena and look to, you know, to go elsewhere or to change that whole whole thing? I mean, I personally don't think so, but, you know, you tell me. Yeah, no, look, you know, the, the death of the CBD has predicted, been predicted for, you know, decades. You know, if you go back, right. as I've done, and look at the, the literature around when telephones were first introduced that was said oh well look you just pick up the phone you don't need to be in the cbd we'll go to our suburban offices and that didn't really happen the same thing with you know uh teleworking as was called back in the old days Mm. you know working from Mm. home all all these things have come part of the working life but as you said earlier can you know humans are social creatures they need to see each other they absorb information best when they are uh, in person and that mm. will be the draw card which holds the CBDs together. And what I think will happen is as we move into 2021, you know, companies which get their workforces back into the office in the appropriate way um, will see that productivity dividend um, spark straight away. And then there'll be, you know, this competition between firms saying, well, this firm's got a CBD office back and running. It's doing really well competitors who might have been slow in getting back in the CBD will be have to get back in there and um, compete with them, and that will draw more people and more workers back into the CBD. So, so that's very invisible hand, um, uh, Terry. Um, so what can be done on the policy side to uh, incentivize businesses and also workers um, to, 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 to get back into um, physical locations? Yeah, I think it's just – it's almost a – 
we have a muscle memory problem over the last, you know, nine months that people have gotten used to working from home. And moving in 2021, it's just getting those, you know, those nudges to get people back on the train, the tram, the bus, the ferry, whatever, and getting back into that routine of the daily commute. Um, and I think a lot of this is, you know, in Australia at least, we've got a, a very good narrative to tell people COVID is under control, um, wear your mask, you know, keep your distance, you know, wash your hands, back to where we were messaging earlier in the year, and this will keep you safe as you travel into the city um, to make it happen there. So I think it's still a lot of subtle stuff. I don't think there's any, um, you know, policy lever. The, the, the city of Melbourne sort of announced reductions in car parking rates, which I don't think is going to do a great deal because there's, there's no, you know... Um, yeah, not everybody's rushing to... Um yeah. <laughs> Hooray, eight, eight, eight bucks in, uh, off my parking uh, uh, every day. Uh, exactly, yeah. It, and, it's and, not strong enough, yeah. Yeah, and I, I've been going into the Melbourne CBD for the last four weeks, you know, a lot of days, and, um, you know, it, it feel when I went in there like four weeks ago, it felt like a Sunday morning. Now, this is that, yeah. you know, a weekday morning. It felt like a Sunday morning, um, you know, Cafes and bars were, you know, shut. Um, you know, I tried to find a, a counter meal. Um, went to all the old usual pubs who were, all, you know, always open in the old days, and they were all shut. So, and, and over the weeks, like I've I've talked to, you know, um, cafes who are open. And I said, like, is, is it worthwhile opening up? And they say, no, not really. But it's really good to be open because they're slowly seeing people return and. When I was in there earlier in the week, it, it was probably the most active it's been. It felt like a busy Sunday morning. Um, there was there was like the, the tradies have been sort of underpinning a lot of the, the cafes in there. Um, but there was more tourists sort of wandering around. And what, one really reassuring sign for me was seeing um, parents, uh, mothers exclusively, um, with their kids in prams coming in for a bit of a wander in the city. So that, that was really reassuring that that group – feel safe to travel into the CBD and, and wander around and do some stuff. Um, but it's going to take, it's going to take a while. But, but um, there, there's a question here, a really big question here, which is it basically comes down to maths. Fundamentally, a lot of those businesses in the CBD need a certain amount of cash flow, not just to cover their costs and make a profit, but to cover their debts. Right. So, and this is where this stuff starts to become problematic for us at a, society level, if there's enough debt underwater, it starts to create, I don't want to say systemic problems, (laughs) um, because that's kind of alarmist language, Um, but it can cause, it's the kind of thing that can cause a kind of double dip recession. Am I am I pushing this too far, Terry, Uh, or Ken, you tell me? I'll answer for me, I think, yeah, I think, you, you know, you are sort of pushing the boat out a little bit here. I mean, look, if if we're if we're talking about uh, policy or measures by which to incentivise uh, people to go back into the CBD and whatever else, uh, honestly, money talks, bullshit walks. I don't think this is so much a uh, governmental uh, prerogative. A bit of a bit of background. Let's put things in perspective and in relative terms. Australia is as safe as houses when it comes to COVID. I mean, a couple of weeks ago here, every day in in, in Holland, there were 10,000 new cases. Every day, right? In Australia, I don't know, you're getting what, maybe 20 
across the whole country. If that, um, the entire of uh, uh, the entire state of Victoria was locked down. Yeah, I, I understand, but I suppose what, where I'm getting at in terms of incentivizing people to go back, basically, it, it should be up to the employers to, and this is going to sound brutal, to say. Uh, we are now instituting a policy where you work three days in the office, two days at home. If you don't come into the office, you no longer have a job. In a, in a job market that's as tight as this one, that's as much incentive as you need to give people, honestly. The government can only do so much. I mean, they're going to make tram rides free, uh, I don't know, give you four free coffees. Or, like they, they can't and they're strapped as it is, right? So th- that's it. I mean... Th- that's the reality. And in terms of what you're talking about, you know, creating debt, if businesses, you know, the the, infrastructure, the supporting businesses in the CBDs go under and whatever else, okay, obviously it's extreme in this instance because there's been a greater cause or, or reason for them to maybe go under. But honestly, with ever-increasing leases in normal times and, and staff costs and this, that and the other, Honestly, you know how many you know the turnover in businesses in the CBD on an average CBD in a normal year is huge, right? So I, I don't think this is going to create any systemic risk or any. It's just going to be a bit of rationalisation. Yeah, the, the collapse in revenue for the for these guys is like 90 percent for a lot of uh, cafes and, and and restaurants and bars, right? So. Uh, let's like make it a simple assumption, right? That your rental costs, and this would be cheap in a CBD location, are, are like twenty five percent of your revenue. Right? Mm. So, yeah. so if you have a ninety eighty percent, um, and and your running costs are maybe twenty or thirty percent as well, right? So, um, so 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 if you start up the business. Uh, when when you've got an eighty percent decline in revenue uh, over six months, and you start up the business, and all of a sudden you you, you know your fixed costs are still twenty five percent of your business, your running costs are another thirty percent. All of a sudden, you've got you know fifty percent of what was your previous revenue, but your revenue is still down. Fifty percent of where you know you are still losing money hand over. Yeah, I mean we're, we're going to let Terry jump in here, and the one thing I will say is, as harsh as may sound, tough luck. I mean, I'm sorry, and, and that, it, is, it is, but that's the reality. That's you know, in economic terms, it's called creative destruction, uh, economic rationalisation. Shit happens. Pardon my French. So, but Terry, please, I, I'd like for you to weigh in. Uh, I think, like once again, we're in a very harsh territory with these comments I'm about to make. Um, we're kind of lucky to a degree that, you know, cafes, bars and restaurants and some retail are the ones which have been decimated so much because in normal time, though, that's a sector which has a huge churn in businesses going out of business every year. So, you know, you think about CBDs, you know, cafes and restaurants turn over so much because they can't pay the bills. Um, and, and, that's, and that's where... Uh, landlords, you know, know that, you know, I've got a cafe for this year, it might not be there next year, but I'll find another cafe. So there, there's always there's always this creative destruction in that sector. So the fit-out costs, you know, are enormous for a cafe. Um, so you're not, like, in a huge amount of debt. You just sort of work away and start another cafe. Um, and I think the other thing is, like, the property sector is so diverse in CBDs. You've got your, 
your, your big um, players who have you know spent a lot of money uh, building shiny shopping malls and shiny office towers. And you know, from my observations, those parts of the CBD are the ones with relatively low vacancy rates. You know, the, the businesses in there um, are the chains with deeper pockets who have got through this. Um, the places we're seeing lots of leases and boarded up ones are your older stock, you know, buildings from the, the 20s, the 30s, the 50s, the 70s, which are probably, you know, um, even maybe a legacy asset for families, you know, uh, smaller property players who don't have a lot of money invested in that because grandpa bought it in the 20s and it got paid off its mortgage in the uh, the 50s, and it's been just a steady stream of sort of free money for a long time. So uh, that, that's another sort of hardening thing that there's not a lot of debt associated with those types of properties mm. who have been hard hit by the closures. That is a fascinating way to look at it. Um, it's yeah, it's amazing. Um, so one of the things that I didn't flag earlier, um, but it has been um, started to become a, a a weekly thing for us is to, to take a few listener questions. Hello, listeners. So um, let's start off with Irascible Me, who, who genuinely has a really good question, um, which is that our, will our C- CBDs survive as they are? And will we need to rethink the mix of commercial, retail, residential? And is it an opportunity for us to improve the quality of some of our CBDs? You know, p- people talk about, you know, quality of space when it comes to CBDs to me a lot. Like, um, and, you know, qu- quality of place means so much, such different things to so many different people. And um, people are always like, oh, well, like, you know, Melbourne almost made its reputation on, you know, dirty, grungy laneway bars, um, which, you know, 30 years ago, people might have actually seen as a as a bad thing, but they actually turned the laneways into a, a positive. No, we're, so, we're not going to do it in Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that now. <laughs> like, um, can you do it's, it's, like it's, it's, metro metropolitan differentiation? <laughs> yeah. um, so, so it's it's in my mind, it's basically just like don't try and you know reinvent your CBD, which in Australia's cases have been built up over 150, 200 years, you know, don't try and reinvent them in the next six months. Just see where the world lands. Like, um, you know, the the city of Melbourne, you know, pre-COVID, it happened a million people coming in on any given day on average. Um, You know, I did some back-of-the-envelope estimates, and I reckon, you know, in 2021, there's probably going to be 600,000 people coming in, which, which just puts it back to where it was sort of, 15 years ago in terms of pedestrian counts. So if my back-of-the-envelope numbers are correct, let's just see how the city functions with 600,000 people coming in on a day. Let's see what that means for how many cafes we need, you know, what's the tram and train capacity required um, under this. Let's just see how that goes and then try and work out what the world looks like trying to, rather than trying to reinvent them here right now for some future we don't really understand yet just made me realize that uh if you um one of the the other thing of like cost transfer is that if the transport network doesn't cost so much to run or if it isn't as intensive you can move some of those dollars somewhere else right so you can either improve your current service or you can keep the current service as it is and shift some of those 
um, operational costs to other places. Really interesting, uh, you know, where if if, if the uh, city of Sydney or or the state government suddenly found you know uh, a few million dollars a day in a drawer, what would they do with it? Um, use it to pay down pay down debt, um, which is a lot, of, which is uh, very high. Um, or they could do some other things. Anyway, um, let's um, uh, let's move on to another question. Tim Harcourt, uh, who's the airport economist, a great guy. Um, he asks, will working from home lead to more offshoring by Australian companies to qualified workers who are working from home in other countries? And I really love this question. So previously in an office, you needed a graphic designer. Uh, now graphic designer is working from home. Why not get graphic designer in, like I said, Bangalore or wherever um, at thirty uh, percent of the cost? And uh, it turns out that giving you know paying the person that wage at thirty percent actually makes their life a whole lot better. Um, what do you think? Um, well, it's funny. I was t- I saw a couple of big corporates this year, and they were saying that actually they brought. Um, call centre jobs home from India. Um, and part of the problem was that, you know, I think Bangalore was in lockdown for a period of time, which meant that I was calling up to have my home loan rate adjusted and the phone wasn't being answered um, in India. So, and I think it's also people, you know, in times of stress, you know, um, needing more, they can't go into a branch and talk to people face-to-face, um, have led to some companies bringing some investments home. And, uh, I sort of remember this, this funny story when it comes to your example about, um, you know, the graphic designer. It, it's so often that local knowledge in that context, because um, I think for, for a brief period, um, the Fin Review outsourced some of their sub-editing work to New Zealand. That's right. Um, yep. Yeah. And there was this classic day when I opened up the Fin Review, um, and there's a picture of Barnaby Joyce, uh, I'm sure everyone knows, out the front of um, Parliament House. And the, the the tagline, which the New Zealand sub-editor had put on, was like, um, angry protester at Parliament House. Um, he had not mm. recognised Barnaby Joyce uh, for who he was. So that, that's the kind of thing that, without that local knowledge, you know, things like that can happen. As somebody who's been in um, journalism for 20 years, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, and was an editor... Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, another uh, question uh, from Jordan Alicio, um, one of our early guests on the BIP show, a uh, guy who's incredibly well read um, on uh, Bitcoin and gold in particular, um, but he's a very good macroeconomist. And his question is from uh, this is from Jordan Does this give us an opportunity to reassess GDP growth as a primary? measure of progress uh i back 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 when i was a younger man i I did some national accounting um at the old abs in canberra and um gdp as much as um publicity gets it's not a measure of progress you know it's often um confused for being a measure of progress um all it is is national income in a given year or given period um and i think you know it should always be viewed in the context of all those other indicators. So GDP is one thing. It tells you something, but it's not everything. And that's where if you really want to understand how society is progressing, you want to look at GDP. That's nice. But then you look at, well, is everyone stuck in horrifically long commutes? You know, is there social exclusion because people live in parts of the city they can't access jobs? Um, I think 
that that question really is, you know, um, the answer is we shouldn't be thinking about GDP as the as a measure of progress. We need to be thinking it more about as one measure, and then we've got to thinking about well, what's quality of life, and how do you measure that um, coming through there? Because this has revealed a few, you know, quirks in the in the system of national accounts about how you measure things that. Um, you know, I'm not travelling to work, therefore I'm not paying um, the fare, but I'm getting more leisure time, which isn't picked up in the accounts. So, okay, anyway, this, this is something I've ramble on about for, for hours and hours, so you better stop me now. Yeah, and, and uh, no, no, but uh, the fact that you're not paying the fare um, doesn't, uh, you know, so if you pay the fare, it gets picked up in the national accounts, but you're sitting at home and you might do, you might smash out the best proposal um of your career um, because you've had a bit more time to think about it or whatever it is. Yeah, it's an yeah. incredibly vexed question, I think, is the, the really interesting thing. Just like you, Terry, I could talk about this for hours and hours. Um, one other really important question is house prices. All the way over here in Sydney, uh, I can hear Ken Vexler's eyes doing what they're doing. Um <laughs> Nah, don't be like that, Colgo. I mean, you know my view on this, and 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 it's, it doesn't change. My view has not changed. But carry on. Your view, your view is that the house prices are going up. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's it. I mean, I, I'm I'm not I'm not a, a property market bull nor bear, but I'm 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 a realist, right? Like the factors for why they are going up have not changed in 20 years. If anything, there have been factors that have added to why they're going up. The only thing that's deviated in 20, 30 years is the pace of that growth. That's it. So, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't get these these people that are calling property bubbles and detractors. Like, it's just a reality. That's it. I don't know. Well, 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 that's definitely at the macro level. Um, but, Terry, may, maybe you can talk about the uh, the geographic... Um, split right so, yes. so, so so there's this big um, question about you know does this increase house prices in the outer suburbs well i think so if you think about you know inner city apartments um that they have taken a value hit because you know the the foreign workers the foreign students the hospital workers who were paying the rents in there have all disappeared um so and also the vibrancy that the cbd provided there is sort of uh, disappeared as well. So I think apartment prices in that real central core of Sydney and Melbourne, Brisbane, you know, will take a, a hit. Um, then you move into the middle ring suburbs where I think, you know, prices um, have been supported by um, lower interest rates, um, you know, and also the message that interest rates will be low for longer. You've also, in, in that middle ring suburbs with people working from home, they've actually probably got more money in their pockets because they haven't done the you know, the overseas holiday or holiday Queensland, they haven't yeah. been and paying. The, the household savings rate is like 25%, whereas, yeah. whereas a normal savings rate would be something like 4 Yeah, so yeah. I think the, the most recent accounts had it at a level not seen since the 70s. Um, so there's money in those pockets and people, as discussed, have been spending more time at home and they've, they're craving that bit of, you know, extra space, um, so they're going to be paying a premium for those suburbs. And also they found out that, you know, that local cafes or local restaurants have become so more valuable to them. And, and also in those middle ring suburbs, you, I think the value people have put on open space, so your parklands, your bike paths, which are probably the best in those middle ring suburbs, help support those middle ring suburbs. 
when you get to the outer suburbs, it's it's probably a little bit more patchy depending on where you are because some places were really built up on you know that international migration coming through, um, which has been paused. Um, so there's probably um, developers will not flood the market, but they'll just keep it ticking along, which probably means if you thought you know I bought my house for five hundred thousand dollars in Western Melbourne. Um, it'll just keep growing in value. But I think now just with this pause in international migration, you know, there'll probably be a little bit more supply of greenfield houses in that area. So you probably won't be seeing growth, but you probably won't see declines either. Um, and then you go into the regions. And I think, you know, in some places, you know, popular um, house prices are going to explode just as it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of people to move to a, a regional area. You know whether it's Bendigo, Ballarat, because we've had this really nice case study in, in Hobart over the last five years, where traditionally Hobart's population growth was between 500 people a year and 1,000 people. Then over the last sort of four years pre-COVID, it went up to between uh, 1,000 and 1,500. Mm. So we're talking about 500 more people moving to Hobart. But yeah, house and, prices just exploded. Yeah, and for any any of the equity traders out there, they would <laughs> they would know what we're talking about here, right? Yes. It's a liquidity problem, right? So, um, and, and these smaller towns, people want to go there from the big cities, but they want to, I think, have a period home, you know, close to the city, cafes, restaurants. They don't want to go there and pay good money for a McMansion on the fringe. And all these smaller towns, you know, they're just not geared up to build more houses because they haven't had to do it you know, for, for, for so long. So it will just take a few hundred people coming into a regional market, which will just send off property prices like a rocket. And, and uh, so uh, when you say a few hundred people, it might be as little as a few dozen people in some places. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's so. like if, you, if you're in those, those smaller sort of hamlets outside of the regional centres, yeah, because there's just not enough housing to go around and you can't build it that fast nor with the um, period charm that people are looking for. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so, um, by the way, that was in response to a, uh, a question from, let me call him out because he's a good guy, Luke Winchester. Thanks, Luke. Um, okay, so uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Terry. I think one thing that's important, Ken, uh, given what we normally talk <laughs> about, um, I know since we've known each other um probably the 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 biggest theme of our lives has been that stocks are at all-time highs and the australian dollar is a little bit higher than the rba would like it um but let's just quickly talk about markets um isn't it wild uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, the, the Seppos are off eating turkey and, and watching football, and they're going to take another couple of days off after the fact. Um, the dynamic of why stocks are here, the underlying dynamic, in my opinion, hasn't changed in recent months, isn't going to change in the ensuing months. There is no finer mattress under which to put your cash. Um, so stocks, not unlike Australian property, will continue to go up. It's just the pace... Uh, that may deviate, um, and the Australian dollar is, you know, again as, we, as we've covered several times, it's it's a high beta to the overall risk appetite of which stocks are, uh, you know, the perfect gauge. So, equities higher, risk appetite seemingly higher. 
Aussie hire. But uh, one thing that is that is interesting, uh, there's been a lot of talk in the last probably week, 10 days, all the sell-side notes, all the talking heads on TV, etc., etc., all the strategists are talking about a weaker US dollar. Not, not that we've just seen it, but like a sustainably weaker US dollar in the coming months. Um, I'm not arguing the case. I'm not anti the case. But one thing I think people fail to realise, and this has been a very much a story of this year, is that ultimately markets discount stuff. Like they are a discounting mechanism and people have come have a, have a difficulty coming to terms with the fact that the market is actually actively discounting it. So I would argue that uh, this weakness in the US dollar that everyone's anticipating to, to go on for months and months, I think a lot of it's already there. Um, and I just struggle to see where that next push comes from. And when it does finally come, well, when is it? I mean, we're talking... Yeah, probably a, a good couple of months, so early next year, if and when. But so that that's something that's been sort of troubling me. As in, you know, everyone wants a week. A dollar says it's going to happen. Can't really explain why. Well, particularly when when uh, Janet Yellen uh, is uh, shaping up to be uh, Treasury Secretary uh, in the US, uh, and mm-hmm. actually um, James, uh, who's out on a boat, um, or he might be off the boat here. It's. Um, Getting to sunset, I don't know what time they bring those boats in, but uh, uh, James is always talking about that grey line between um, central banking and, uh, and and the executive branch of government, and uh, yeah. and I think it's a really interesting question now with um, a, a former head of the Fed heading into Treasury. Uh, it um, certainly confirms that trend, uh, but it also. Uh, makes you wonder uh, what's going to happen to the US dollar because because Yellen will be supremely conscious of the effect uh, that uh, uh, that fiscal policy will have uh, uh, on the Fed. But, but but that's the thing. Like I mean, you know, everyone was like, "Oh my God, the FOMC minutes out last night. It'll give a cue as to what they're going to do in December." Bollocks! Like market didn't move. Uh, you know, I mean. Uh, Janet Yellen announced as the nominee for Treasury Secretary market discounted it within about three seconds nothing happened uh, headlines big deal um, you know let's as I said the, 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 the misconception this year for me has been that you know markets uh, are slow to discount or to, to, to price and whatever else or I think the real conversation is that you know, no, no one's been able. You know, no one can conceive that the the tail has already been priced, right? So, bottom bottom line is, I think everything we know right now is already in the price. So, short of aliens landing, or I don't know, let, let's see what happens. Yeah, um, there's a great piece uh, by um, uh, Stephen Kirchner, who is a uh, was a guest of ours uh, early in the series. Um, we are now up to 26 episodes, by the way, which is amazing. Wow. I'm, I'm totally exhausted even just um, saying it out loud. But um, they, um, Stephen w- was pointing out that, like, over time, markets are becoming more and more efficient. So they're better and better at pricing in every possible scenario. Um, and... Uh, yeah, from my observations um, over over time, uh, anybody who thinks that um, the market is missing a trick is a mug. 
Um, so there, there is one other thing, though, I think that's important. And Terry, it's a question for you because um, you look at the domestic Australian economy so closely. Um, the, 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 the Australian dollar is at um, almost 74 cents, right? So 73 and a half uh, as we're talking. Um, the, 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 the RBA has in the past used language like uncomfortably high, etc., you know, um, to describe the level of the currency. Um, what do you think about the, in the current context, um, with all the things that we need to do to um, drive economic growth, um, Aussie dollar at 73.5 cents, what does that mean? Yeah, look, it's, it's something that I get more and more nervous about it, especially with our central bankers trying to talk the dollar down and nudge it down. It's just sort of had, had plenty of strength and and the challenge is, over the last you know few years, it's sort of bounced in this range of you know sixty nine, seventy four ish. Probably probably that high. Um, and you know, for exporters, you know, a couple of cents um, either way. You can sort of, if it's down a bit when you make your sale, if it's up a little bit, you can sort of either a bit more profit or a bit less profit for exporters. But my concern, if it starts to sort of break above that that seventy five and heads towards eighty, it just makes things so much more uncomfortable um, for Australian exporters, um, and also brings in more and more cheaper imports. So it, I think, it really is at, at an awkward or uncomfortable point um, where we do want to see that dollar come down, you know, a couple of cents, mm. just so it sort of stays in that historical range and there's more certainty for everyone. Yeah, and and Ken, to your point, um, you know, if uh, US dollar weakness was to be the thing, the Aussie dollar mm. would do the opposite, right? Well, obviously, I mean, you know, and, and it's 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 the major uh, currency that it trades against. So, yeah, if, if the dollar really fell out of bed, the US dollar, then then Aussie has plenty of room to rally. But yeah, that, that's a big if in my book. And, and and that's a scenario where we've had we've got plenty of headwinds on the Australian economy. The real economy, you know, having that dollar uh, creep upwards and just sort of crimp that export sector um, and the competing imports, just, just it, it wouldn't. We don't need that at this point in time. No, um, and, and quickly on equity prices, uh, Terry. Do you, um, do, so you know, Dow thirty thousand, all that kind of stuff. Um, so fine, uh, and there's a lot of reasons behind that, um, but. Uh, equity prices are high. Um, Chris Weston, uh, who is a good friend of the show, I remember him always. I always remember him saying a few years to uh, the, a few years ago, saying to me that the the smartest thing you can do as an investor is to do what the Fed wants you to do, which is, you know, at, at the time was you know sell the dollar and uh, and buy equities. And um, it wouldn't have been a, a, you would have lost on selling the dollar, but um, you, you would have been okay on, on buying equities <laughs> like three years ago. Uh, so, um, you know, how do you think this, the, the, the equity prices look um, in terms of like overall macro risk? Uh, well, I think, you know, you know Ken summed it up pretty well earlier. Um, that the markets have, have have priced in what they perceive to be the um, risks, but you know we, we are in a 
unprecedented time, you know, huge amounts of liquidity, interest rates at 3,000-year lows. Um, there's money looking for homes, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's going into, into stocks and, and housing. And I suppose the, the good thing about, you know, house prices being, you know, pretty robust um, in, in the big cities in Australia, um, the share market rallying, it, it's, it's helping people who have had a, you know, tough year, you know, that wealth effect will hopefully kick in as well. So, you know, people seeing the property prices not falling, um, you know, the share portfolio heading in the right direction will once again give them confidence, plus the 25% savings ratio in the last quarter um, to get out there and, and spend money. Consumers, if you're listening, get out there and spend money. <laughs> All right, and um, get back into your um, offices because um, <laughs> – uh, thriving cities are uh, very important for us. Look, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're on iTunes and Spotify at just search The Bip Show. We're also on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. We're there individually at Colgo at James Whelan 42, who's on a boat at Ken Vexler and Terry's uh, handle is at T Raw Oz. Uh, uh, you can find Terry, and um, he's uh, genuinely one of the smartest people in terms of thinking about how local economies work uh, in Australia uh, today. So, um, Terry, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great to have you on. Oh, look, no, it's been a pleasure, Paul and Ken, uh, being here. I could talk about this stuff all night, but we. All have our lives to ret- all day uh, return to. Well, that's right. It's uh, it's um, literally the sun is going down here in uh, in, in Sydney. Can uh, uh, have a fantastic day in Amsterdam. I hope it's a great weekend for you. Uh, thank you, Colgo, and thank you, Terry, for coming on. Very uh, very eye opening and enlightening. Really appreciated the chat. Thanks, man. Great. Um, I've got one very exciting bit of uh, news to share with uh, those of you who have managed to uh, stay until the end of the show. Uh, We are going to be reprising uh, the Christmas special uh, between me, James Whelan, David Scott, Joanne Masters, and Laura Fitzsimmons from uh, J.P. Morgan. We're going to be reprising that towards the end of the year. So the best thing you can do to make sure you don't miss it is hit subscribe, rate the show, um, and just make sure that you don't miss that episode. It'll be the week before Christmas. Um, And this was something that we did, uh, I think, three years in a row, and uh, it became a bit of a tradition, and uh, it was really fun. Frankly, if you had listened to the investment insights on all of those podcasts, uh, you would have done pretty well the the year following. So uh, they were pretty fun. Okay, so the show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. We will catch you next time. Uh, Terry Ronsley, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. And thanks again for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.